One of our employees, Ashley Cox, she works at our school, uh, just recently was traveling out I-205 towards Clackamas when her life was unexpectedly interrupted. Her car was traveling between a cement barrier and a large semi-truck on the other side. It had been raining, the road was wet, visibility was obviously poor, and the truck was spraying water all over the front of her vehicle. As she approached an overpass over the span of the freeway there, suddenly a large rock was dropped by some nutcase up on the overpass and impacted itself into her windshield. Now, can you imagine, since that started happening a number of years ago in our country, I know I always look at overpasses cautiously when I go over, just wondering if there's somebody up there with a rock. And that day, Ashley, unfortunately, experienced one of those individuals. Out of the blue comes this rock and a crash. Can you imagine? You're driving along. You're lost, if you drive like I do, in kind of the business of the day. You're already navigating difficult road conditions in that kind of weather and something like that happens. There's a loud crash. Your car maybe suddenly jolts, and all of a sudden your windshield fractures in front of you. Visibility is gone. What you do in those next moments, frightened probably out of your mind, might dictate the difference between life and death. Fortunately for Ashley, she did everything right that day. She stayed calm, she focused on the road and not on her circumstances, and she took defensive action to navigate her car to safety. Sometimes rocks come crashing in to your life and to mine. And how we respond in those times often determines how we come through the difficulties that we face. This morning our text is going to be from the life of Joseph, the twelfth son of Jacob in the Old Testament. The Bible recounts at least three times when rocks came significantly crashing into his life and the remarkable way that he dealt with it. This morning I'm going to be reading from Genesis chapter 37 to 41. That's a large portion of scripture, and I'm just going to highlight four sections. It'll be easier for you to follow along on the screens this morning than in your uh, Bibles, just because of the the length of those passages and, and the excerpts that I'm pulling out. So if you want to follow along with me, beginning in Genesis chapter 37. Joseph was a young man of 17. Now Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and they could not speak a kind word to him. One day Jacob said to Joseph, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Go and see if all is well with them and the flocks and bring word back to me. His brothers saw him coming in the distance and they plotted to kill him. But the oldest brother, Reuben, tried to rescue him. Let's not take his life. Throw him into this cistern, but don't lay a hand on him. So when Joseph came, they took him and threw him into the cistern. And when the merchants came by, his brothers sold him to the merchants who took him to Egypt. When they returned home, they told Jacob Joseph had been killed by an animal. Meanwhile, the merchants sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar. The the Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered. And when his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything that he did, Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything that he owned. Now Joseph was well built and handsome and after a while his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused and though she spoke to Joseph day after day, 
He refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. So one day when Potiphar came home, she said, that Hebrew slave came to me to make sport of me, but as soon as I screamed for help, he ran out of the house. When Potiphar heard that story, he burned with anger and he put Joseph in prison. But while Joseph was there, the Lord was with him and he granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The cupbearer and the baker of the Pharaoh of Egypt were also in prison and each had a dream the same night. In the morning, Joseph saw they were dejected and asked, why are your faces so sad? We both had dreams, they answered, but there is no one to interpret them. Joseph said, do not interpretations belong to God. Tell me your dreams. After Joseph interpreted the dreams, he said to the cupbearer, when all goes well with you, remember me and mention me to Pharaoh so that I might get out of prison. Later, Pharaoh restored the cupbearer to his position. The cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Genesis chapter 41, when two full years had passed, Pharaoh had two dreams. In the morning, his mind was troubled, but no one could interpret the dreams for him. Then the cupbearer said, today I am reminded of my shortcomings. He told Pharaoh of Joseph interpreting his dream in the prison. So Pharaoh, Pharaoh sent for Joseph and asked him to interpret the dreams. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Joseph went on to interpret the dreams for, that foretold of a severe famine that would ravage the entire nation of Egypt and the land beyond. He counseled that Pharaoh should store up grain before the famine and then could ration it out during and survive the ordeal. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all of this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. At this point in his life, Joseph was now 30 years old. He had been a captive. He'd been separated from his home, from his parents, for 13 years. He'd been forsaken by his family. He'd been falsely accused by the people that he had faithfully served. And he'd been forgotten by those he had helped along the way. Yet somehow, he found the strength to overcome all that had gone on in his life and found himself favored by both God and man as the second most powerful man on the face of the earth at that time. How does that happen in a person's life? No matter what life seemed to throw at him, he appeared to go through it unfazed, which we know simply couldn't have been possible as a human being. He was human, and so these events that took place in his life had to impact him, had to hurt emotionally. And he would have had every human reason to be messed up inside, to be angry, to be resentful, to be vengeful, bitter, even faithless towards God. But we don't see him respond that way. Somehow, he keeps moving forward in his life. He could have easily been overcome and overwhelmed. He could have lashed out at those around him. He could have tried to escape and seek revenge, but he never does. In the face of overwhelming events in his life, we see him overcoming those circumstances one after another. How does he do that? And how can we do that in our lives today? We're going to take a look in the next few moments at the amazing life of this young man to see what we can learn when rocks 
come crashing in to our lives. First of all, this morning, keep a healthy focus. Joseph had learned to focus on how to make the best of difficult times, and he never gave up hope that God would see him through. As a slave and as a prisoner, his focus was on applying himself to work through the situation, not to escape or fight it. He seemed to understand that being angry or resentful or reactionary would not help him in his circumstance. He didn't focus on the problems or necessarily even how to fix them. He focused on how he could make the best of the circumstances he was in, placing his hope in God to be with him. 34 years ago, in the nation of Argentina, the city of Buenos Aires, a young man by the name of Abel Madariaga faced a, a tremendous difficulty in his life. On the streets of that city, he watched helplessly as his 28-year-old wife was forced into a car by military police and abducted right before his eyes. This was in 1977. She was pregnant with their first child, and sadly, Abel would never see his wife again. It was a time of military and political unrest in the nation of Argentina. Suspected dissidents were being executed and their children abducted. About 400 children were stolen at birth from their mothers who were kidnapped and killed, just like Abel's wife, during that six-year dictatorship that ruled the nation of Argentina. Children like Abel's unborn son, who was to be named Francisco. Abel, like many family members, had to flee the nation for their own safety until it was safe to return six years later in 1983. Since then, he has made his life's cause finding the lost children of those families who were impacted by that ordeal. And he has helped to find, in his efforts, 100 of those 400 kids who were taken, all the while looking desperately for his own son as well. And after decades of doubt and loneliness, of searching faces in the street, hoping for a glimmer of his wife or himself perhaps in the faces of the people that he saw, maybe thousands of people in the course of his experience during that time. Abel, now 60 years of age, finally found his son, Francisco, just last year. A 34-year search for his son, finally over, his greatest hope, finally realized. He said, I never stopped thinking I would find him, hoping at a news conference as he presented his son to the world. Over the years, Abel has organized many such news conferences, recognizing the finding of those other children. But that day, sharing this great news about his son, his chest swelled with pride. At times, he said, I wondered what I was living for. I had to find ways every day just to continue, thinking about just little things, moving forward, hoping for this moment of happiness. Hugging my son for the very first time, it was as if I filled a hole in my soul. 34 years, your child taken from you. I can't imagine an experience like that. When our children were small growing up, they used to spend the night at friends' house. My wife and I would go crazy for a night. We about had to be medicated sometimes. We just never liked our kids being out of the house. But 34 years to not know where he was, if he was alive, and if you'd ever see him again. How do you survive something like that with hope, according to Abel Madariaga? Hope 
keeps us moving forward in difficult times. Focusing ourselves to hope and move through our difficulty is so much more helpful in those times than letting our emotions take control of us or trying to figure out why things have happened to us or assigning blame. Joseph seemed somehow to understand that, and so he hoped. And he focused on how he could move forward and make his own situation a little better. Right here in the city of Portland, there's an amazing uh, young man uh, named Jacob Albin. He's 12 years old today. Three years ago, when he was nine, uh, he became very, very ill. He developed persistent lesions on the top of his head, and his body became racked with pain. This led to hospitalization and an eventual diagnosis of acute lymphoblastic leukemia, a cancer of the blood stemming from bone marrow. Over the next year and a half, Jacob was in and out of the hospital multiple times. He was poked, he was prodded, he was pumped full of drugs, and today he still wears a tube in his chest as an intake for medication, and he takes a handful of pills every single night, all as a part of his chemotherapy treatments that will last yet at least another year. And yet remarkably, during this entire ordeal, this young man now just 12 years old, has made his focus not his own pain or his problems. Jacob has been trying to ease the pain of other children in local cancer wards here in Portland. One day early in his treatment, Jacob, then nine years old, said to his mom, it's not fair that these kids who are so young have to be going through something like this. So Jacob decided to do something about it, starting with his own toys, dumping out his own allowance, which he used to go buy additional toys. He gathered all of that up and he hit the floor of one of the local hospitals in the cancer ward and distributed all that he had to children. But that wasn't near enough to do what Jacob had set out to do in his effort to help these other kids. So for the last three years, he and his mom have organized a local toy drive in the city to benefit cancer-stricken children. In the first two years, he raised over $25,000 in cash, age 9 and 10, to benefit these children that have purchased toys and, and benefited these little kids. Last year, I saw a picture of him in the paper. He delivered a moving truck loaded with over 150 containers of toys, $7,500 in cash and gifts cards, and he presented those to the local cancer association. Last month, in the month of May, he just completed his third annual toy drive at age 12. He said afterwards, when I was in the hospital, they would bring me stuffed animals and toys. It made me happier. So this is just my way of giving back. Now that's a healthy focus. It's a focus that, uh, that changes life, not only his own life, but the lives of other people. And it's so important in difficult times. It helps us to determine right priorities, emotions, and actions. Without it, it's easy to let it become about us and be overwhelmed by the circumstances. Some of that is normal. We process through difficulty, we grieve, we work through some of those issues. But in time, if we can step back and turn our focus outward at more than just our own circumstances, looking for ways to move forward from where we're at, beyond the emotions, beyond the worry, beyond the questions or the blame, it will help us in overcoming the circumstances we face. Focus can be a great and a helpful thing in life. If I personally would just learn that value if I would have just focused a little bit more recently at the big red stop sign that was right in front of my car, 
More importantly, if I would have focused on the police officer who was parked right next to that big red stop sign, I could have saved myself a lot of emotion that day, a lot of assigning of blame, and I could have saved myself a generous $287 contribution to our fair city just from a little bit more focus. Number two this morning, be committed in our faith. No matter what Joseph was going through, he put his confidence in God, relying on him and not on himself. When he faced Pharaoh, he said, I cannot do it, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. After 13 years of being captive, of being abandoned, of being mistreated, of the hardship that he faced, he still believed. His faith was still committed to God, and he knew God was working on his behalf, even if he couldn't always see it or understand it. Up on the Washougal River late last summer, early fall, young man by the name of Kia Rodriguez, 14 years of age, got trapped underneath a waterfall, stuck in the water, his feet caught in the rocks there. The water was ice cold and up to his chin. Bystanders tried unsuccessfully to get him out, to free him, and took turns just trying to hold his head above the water and to shield him somewhat from the waterfall that was pounding down on top of him. When rescue workers finally arrived, Kia's body had shut down from the frigid water and he was unconscious. Bystanders and rescue workers finally freed him, but by then his heart had stopped, given up in the cold temperature of that water that day. Rescue workers began CPR and eventually were able to revive him, but soon they lost his heartbeat again. Two more times his heart stopped and had to be restarted. His parents later said, we thought we were going to bury our child that day, it was that close. The doctor who treated Kia in intensive care said a story like this is very rare. Only the second time in 75 serious drowning cases in 14 years of medicine, the doctor has seen someone survive an ordeal of this nature. The doctor went on to explain his lungs and his heart were no longer functioning. For all practical purposes, this boy was dead. He survived because his body temperature had dropped to 84 degrees, so that by the time he lost consciousness, his brain needed less oxygen and could keep functioning. In warmer water, seemingly a better condition, he would have been dead. In the end, the doctor said what we had was the best possible circumstance in a very bad situation. A miracle was a much better description for Kia that day, who said he believes that God saved him to give him a second chance at life and to make a difference with the life that he had. The cold water that appeared to have killed him that day was actually the thing that God used to save his life. Even when we don't see or understand what God is doing and what's going on around us, the Bible says that God can make even the worst circumstances work together for good, that he can turn our mourning into dancing and can give us something of beauty instead of ashes when we've placed our faith and our confidence in him. Joseph seemed to know all along that he would never survive the ordeal he was going through if he did it on his own strength. Even at his lowest point, after his brothers had rejected him, after Potiphar had turned on him, in the darkness of a prison cell, somehow Joseph knew he wasn't alone, that God was there in the darkness and was going to see him through. Jim Smith awoke in his travel trailer sometime over the course of this past year 
to look out the window and see the nearby home of his daughter, his son-in-law, and his four grandchildren engulfed in flames. He yanked on his pants and some shoes. He didn't have time for a shirt. He busted out of his trailer and ran into the fire-filled house as the wind that night just stirred and whipped up the flames all throughout the home. A neighbor described the scene as a giant fireball. Pressing through the smoke and the fire and the flames that night, Jim made his way through the house, down into the basement where he finally located his six-year-old grandson, Aiden. He scooped him up and held him in his arms and said, come on, bud, let's get out of here. And he carried him through the fire, outside to safety, eventually suffering burns to his arm, his head, shoulders, 75% of his back. At the same time, his son-in-law, Stephen, pressed through the fire-filled house to locate the other children who were ages two, four, and seven and bring them out to safety. Afterwards, Jim said, I've never been so afraid in my life. In the middle of the fire, the flames looked white. You could see blues and reds. The heat was tremendous. I had to hold my breath at times just so I wouldn't burn my lungs. The fire chief on duty at the scene said the fire was simply raging and the burns to Jim's head, shoulders, back, and arms indicated that the flames were roaring up above his head and all around his body. But as frightening as that must have been for Jim and Stephen as a grandpa and as a dad, fighting their way through those kinds of circumstances, looking for those kids, imagine for a moment what it would have felt like to be those kids, ages two, four, six, and seven, on the inside of a fire-filled house. If you've ever seen media coverage of a fire, the inside of a fire can be frightening. There's an eerie sound, uh, almost deafening at times, and it's really a terrifying experience. And that was those kids there that night, likely wondering where help was, maybe uh, cowering, wondering if anyone was going to find them, if they were going to live or die. Then imagine how those kids felt in those moments when through the smoke and through the fire stepped a grandpa, stepped a dad, and scooped him up in their arms and said, come on, bud, let's get out of here, and carried him out of that place to safety and a new life. Sometimes the challenges that you and I face seem and feel like flames that are going to overcome us. But we have to believe that God is with us in the fire. And like those kids, we have to put ourselves in God's hands and trust that he's going to take care of us. We have to keep believing that he's with us, even when we don't see him or feel him, just like Joseph did during 13 years of captivity. God is in control. And he knows where we, are, where we are. He knows where you're at today. He knows what's going on in your life and mine. He does not cause the fire. Let me say that again. God does not cause the fire. But he knows the way out. And he reminds us, I will never leave you or forsake you. He's the only one in your life who can ever say that and truly mean it. I will never leave you or forsake you. Number three this morning. Do the right things. The amazing thing about Joseph was that no matter what happened to him, no matter how much he was undeservingly hurt or by who, he chose to have a right attitude and chose to do the right thing. He chose not to fight his brothers. He chose not to try and escape. He chose not to give in 
to temptation to Potiphar's wife, but instead he chose to help others along the way. He chose. The body of 16-year-old Kiera Brinkley, a young lady here in the city of Portland, bears today the brutality of meningococcal disease that attacked her at an early age of two. To save her life, doctors had to do the unthinkable. They had to amputate her limbs, her legs above the knee and well into her thighs, and her arms above the elbow. But her mom, Alicia, was there all along and made sure that she knows she's different only on the outside. She tells others that Kiera is the same girl she always was, just a little bit shorter. From that day forward, her mom chose to see her as a normal child. And because of that, Kiera chose to grow up seeing herself as a normal kid as well. Her mom said, I've never been bitter. Regardless of what we left behind on the operating table that day, my daughter was alive. Kiera learned to walk with the help of prosthesis and later joined the cheerleading squad at school. She discovered that she liked to dance and her mom was there to encourage her again. Eventually, she learned to tap dance with the help of her prosthetics. And later, she learned to freestyle without the aid of any of those devices. At a recent high school at a assembly here in the city, a friend of hers wheeled her her torso without her prosthetics attached and just what remained of her arms and her legs, wheeled her out onto the gym floor in a packed high school assembly. The place was deathly quiet. And then in a moment, Kiera hurls herself out of the wheelchair, does a cartwheel out onto the gym floor and performs a mesmerizing dance routine that captivated every student in the place. At the end of the routine, the students stood and gave her a deserved standing ovation. When I danced, Kira said, people see me as the girl who's smiling. They don't see a girl who's not considered whole. Cartwheeling, out of a wheelchair, no arms, no legs. The last time I did a cartwheel was, well, never. I've never been able to do a cartwheel. <laughs> in my entire life. I thought about just trying to demonstrate that inability this morning and I realized that I would probably end up in a wheelchair at the end of the routine. All of that began with a mom who chose and taught a daughter to choose as well. And overcoming difficulty in your life and mind always begins with a choice. It takes a decision. It takes intention. It takes determination. We choose our attitude and we choose our actions. And when we do, going from a pit to a palace, going from severed limbs to dancing can become a reality in our lives as well. If anyone had the right not to do the right thing in their lives, to be angry, to be bitter, to be resentful or vengeful, it would have been Joseph. But that's not what he does. He didn't let circumstances dictate his response. Joseph seemed to understand that not everything in life will be fair or will make sense. He didn't understand it all, but he did want to overcome it all. Joseph did the right thing for overcoming each hardship that he faced, even when his circumstances didn't make sense or even though he had reason not to. Chance Carone and Andrew Perez, two boyhood friends here in uh, the Gresham area outside of Portland, they attended high school at Reynolds High School. 
One day, Andrew was handling a brand new shotgun that he had just purchased and thought that he had removed all of the ammunition from. But suddenly, the gun went off and the blast killed his best friend, Chance. Andrew subsequently pled guilty in court to criminally negligent homicide. In court that day, Chance's mother, Helen, read a letter about the unimaginable way this had impacted her family and how there was no way to understand or make sense of such a loss for them or for Andrew. She said she did not want her son's best friend to go to prison for accidentally shooting him. She wrote, I expect you will turn this tragic event into something meaningful and noble and that you will use this horrible event to move towards success in your future to honor my son. She read that with tears streaming down her cheeks. Then she paused. She looked over at Andrew and she smiled. Then tears began to fill her eyes again and she told Andrew that she would be there to help him on the rough road ahead and that he should better his life in honor of her son. She ended her letter that day by saying, with love, Helen. Helen Caron then stepped from the microphone, leaned over and hugged Andrew's mom that day in court, who said after the hearing, she's been overwhelmingly amazed by the Caron family's ability to forgive. Just three days after the shooting, when Andrew was released on bail, Helen Caron, her son not even buried yet, invited Andrew and his mom to her home so that the two families could begin the process of healing and of moving forward together. Often in life, rocks that crash into our experience are undeserved and don't make any sense at all. How we respond in those times impacts us and others and can even change the course of human life. Doing the right thing often isn't easy. It wasn't easy for Ashley that day in her car. It wasn't easy, easy for Joseph during 13 years of rejection and captivity. It wasn't easy for Helen, I'm sure, in those days following the death of her son in court as she read those words. Things like repentance, forgiveness, new priorities, personal discipline are just some of the expressions that we face in trying to do the right thing in the circumstances of our life. It doesn't always seem to make sense, those decisions that we have to make, what's happened to us, or the right response that we should take in those, in those moments, in those days and times. But we see as we look into the lives of others, as we look into the word and see the life of Joseph, we'll be blessed when we do the right thing, even when we may have reason not to.